the office I want to share with you, getting ready to record for this Sunday. Uh, you know, we use our phone to record these, and I, I put it in our little camera holder, and when I did that, it pressed down on both buttons, and if you have an iPhone and do that on both sides, it actually will call 911 automatically, and if it holds down long enough, it will also start to call emergency contacts on your phone. So I'm sitting here getting ready to record, and all of a sudden I see police cars pulling in here uh, to, to our office, and I'm like, what is going on? And then I realized, oh my gosh, my phone has been clamped down in our little phone holder, and it's called 911. Uh, so, you know, you just never know what's gonna happen. It's always an adventure, but I so wish that you were here to share these goofy moments uh, like this together. I can't wait to, to when we can do that, and we can all laugh. You can laugh at me, uh, and I can laugh at you, and we can all do that together. But man, I miss you. I hope you're doing really well. Happy Valentine's Valentine's Day uh, to everybody. Today, when you get ready to pass the peace, I want you to think about maybe someone who is a single person. So someone who's not married or uh, not, um, not engaged or has a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Just someone that, that God puts on your heart today and send them a message just to say, hey, I see you today. Let them know that you see them, that God loves them today. It would just be a cool way to pass the peace. So go ahead and do that right now. While you're doing that, I want to just um, give you a little update uh, actually on our gathering together. So as most of you know, we have a partnership with Messiah Lutheran Church here in Wakanda, and they're great ministry partners of ours. They've been so gracious to let us meet there over the last couple of years and are happy to, for us to continue to do so. Uh, however, right now, their policies still don't allow us to have enough people in the building where we can hold Sunday services there right now. So we're in ongoing conversation with them. That's, that's not gonna change anytime soon. Uh, and, and just right now, it's just not feasible for us to be able to do that with the amount of people that they're allowing in the building at one time. And so we're still gonna continue talking and praying. And we, we anticipate that sometime in the coming months that will change. Uh, but for right now, we just really believe that while we're not able to do that, that God has something for us. Uh, while we're meeting in our villages and while we're gathered together on Sundays, and that this isn't um, this isn't a lesser than of what God will one day do when we're gathered together. This is just different right now than what God will do when we all are able to gather together again. So I want to encourage you and challenge you just a little bit to not let your attitude or the words of your mouth uh, kind of allow you to think about this period uh, as though somehow we are being kept from something. I actually really believe that God has like hidden something for us to find in the midst of this season. And that if we're willing to go look for it, if we're willing to actually pursue what God has for us right now, we will discover uh, something that God has for us. And we'll discover that when we gather together, when we're able to all come together the way that we all want to, that we will be better positioned for what God wants to do. So I want to encourage you to have that posture. And I want you to know that it's my heart and my desire, as well as our leaders, that we move towards that as soon as possible, but we're just not quite there yet. Uh, we're, we'll let you know just as soon as we know. We also, I wanna let you know that we are going to, starting next month, start having some worship nights together. Uh, and actually this week, I want you to watch for a video that will explain what those worship nights will be like because they're gonna be a little bit different than what we've done in the past. So that's the deal. Hey, if, if Fusion's your home, make sure you're giving your tithes and your offering uh, every week. Uh, God's been so abundantly generous and just taking care of us in so many ways. And we want to honor him and show our love and devotion to him through our tithes and offerings. So make sure that you're doing that as well. Let me pray. And then let's go after God's word together. 
Lord, I pause before you because you are a holy God and you have holy things before us to step in today. God, you have your word set before us, which goes forward and you said it will not return void. So Lord, I know right now that you have something for me and for my friends and family watching and listening. God, I know that you are working in the heart and the minds of people already, that you've already prepared people to receive what it is that I'm going to say today. So I pray, Lord, that you would give me uh, the boldness and the grace and the love and the clarity to say what's on your heart today. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that this would be a holy moment for us as a church where we can hear your instruction, the word of the Lord that changes, that formed all of creation, that spoke things into existence, and that still today sets people free. I pray, Lord, that that word would pierce our hearts and minds, and that, Jesus, we would be holy and completely devoted to you, fully in love and fully free in every way. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to dive in. We have been looking uh, for the last few weeks at this um, idea of first love. And we have kind of uh, named that love for God um, kind of boils down to desire and devotion, that we, we should want uh, to, to be with him, that our affection should be towards him, and that we should be committed to what's good for him, that we should be devoted to things that are pleasing to him as well. And we're learning how we should love him more than anything else. And we're also learning what it looks like to love him with all that we are. And so last week, we started kind of taking apart this, these components of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and your mind. And we talked about the heart. And we're going to maybe just stay for another week on this idea of the heart, but a slightly different angle. And the reason why we're going to do this, rather than just jump right to the next one, one, it's Valentine's Day, so it feels appropriate to continue to talk about the heart. Uh, not really, it just happens to coincide with today. But the other reason is we're actually headed into the Lenten season. So this Wednesday marks Ash Wednesday which is the beginning of the season of Lent. That is the 40 days, it's actually a little bit more than 40 days, that leads up to Easter. And that Lent season here around our church, we've engaged really throughout the history of our church every year um, as a way to, um, to give the Lord space to speak to us in our lives about areas uh, maybe where we need to be drawn more into his heart. Um, it's, it's been a space where we allow the Holy Spirit to, to speak to us and to examine us, where we, we put ourselves intentionally uh, in a place for him to examine our hearts. This mirrors the life of Jesus when he was in this wilderness for 40 days, where he went without food and he underwent some temptations. And the interesting thing in that story is that Jesus comes out of that time of testing full of power, it says in Luke chapter four, that he comes out of that wilderness experience full, filled with the Holy Spirit and full of power in the Holy Spirit. And actually, so this time of Lent isn't just about us looking at ourselves and navel gazing and feeling bad about the things that we've done wrong. It's more saying, God, how can I experience more of you in my life so that I will have more power to live the life that you've called me to live and to do what you've called me to do in this life? So it's actually really a, an incredible time to put ourselves in this position of examine, of letting our hearts be kind of laid bare before God. And as we've talked about before, there is a, um, a competition going on for the love of our heart, a competition for our heart. 
And, and I don't know about you, but as I have been kind of diving into the series, it's been so clear to me that I want all of my heart devoted to the Lord. Um, I, I, want, um, I want the Holy Spirit to purify anything in me that isn't fully devoted to him. I want him to expose any area of my life where there's any division. I want to walk in fuller awareness of God's voice in my life where, where I have a sense of what he's saying when he's saying it to me and what the next steps are. I want to better understand my inheritance and what it means that God loves me. I want to understand all of those things. I don't want to leave, I've said this so many times, I don't want to leave anything left on the table. I want to fully experience everything that God has for me on this life. And so, so looking at what is going on in my heart during this Lent season isn't just a religious practice. It's not just a thing that we do because it's a date on a calendar. It's not just something that we do because uh, it's a religious practice. It's actually uh, an intentional way of posturing ourselves to receive all that God has for us. And so today I want us to look at this idea uh, of the heart uh, a little bit from a different angle. So, so this is related to the idea of our first love because again, there's competition happening in, in us for our heart. There is conflicting loves happening in us already. And again, this season of Lent is a, is a perfect time for us to examine that. So here's our text for today. 1 John chapter 2, verses uh, uh, 15 through 17. Here's what it says. Do not love the world. So this is about love. Do not love the world or anything in it. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. Some translations do something different there, but essentially this is about our love for God versus our love for the world. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So here's what I want us to see right from the beginning, that whatever I'm about to say, whatever the passage has to say, it's using some language that may feel archaic or, or maybe even language that you've associated with other things. This is about the competition for your heart. This is about uh, us not being divided in our love, love for God versus love for the world. This is not, this is not about behavior modification. This is not about religious practices. This is about understanding where the direction, the trajectory of our heart, is it oriented towards love for God or is it oriented towards love from the world? The key idea here is that, that these things are not compatible with one another. There's going to be either love for God or love for the world. So let's break this down. What does it mean to love the world? So this is kind of confusing because we learn, and uh, this, is, this is John who's writing this letter, we learn in the Gospel of John that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't die but have everlasting life. But here we're told we shouldn't love the world. So what is going on with that? Well, the way that, the, that John is using uh, this word, is a little bit nuanced. It requires us to dig in a little bit. So in the biblical worldview, God created the world. Everything that you see, everything that is, the physical world and everything in it. God created it. He said it was good and he loves it. And his love for the world has never stopped. 
It's never been, God has never looked upon the world and said, yeah, I don't love that anymore. He has always been concerned about his creation. He's always loved it. However, um, the way the word world is used by John and in some other places in scripture, it's not talking about the physical created place. It's talking about what has happened to the physical created place. What has happened to the people who occupy and live in that world. And when it refers to the world, what it actually means is the fallen kind of systems of sinfulness that exist in the world. That this world that was created good is now ruled by sin. It's now ruled by evil that is in some way tainted. And it hasn't changed God's love for the world in the sense that he created it and he wants it to flourish and he wants to bring about its good purposes. But, but, we, um, but it's making a difference between what God loves about the world and what the world actually is while it's being under this evil kind of sinful rule. And to be clear, the world isn't as bad as it could be. It's just not as good as it should be. It's not as bad as it could be. It's just not as good as it should be. God loves the world and actually wants to rescue the world from its own destruction. He wants to, to step in, and this is what Jesus has done, has come into creation, stepped into creation to redeem and to rescue it and to, to make it right once again. And the truth is that the way the world exists right now, there is conflict between ultimately the kind of rule and reign that God wants to bring, the kingdom of God, versus the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God is associated with the things in heaven, which are associated with peace and love and joy and righteousness. And right now, the world as it stands right now is concerned with a bunch of things we're going to be looking at here in just a second. And so what John is saying is you can't love the world, meaning you can't be uh, caught up in the things, a part of that system of sinfulness and, and, and evil and, and all of the darkness that exists in the world. So he's not saying we shouldn't love it and, and, and somehow opposition to God, right? He's saying that you can't be caught up in the system of evil that currently exists in the world. And actually to do so is in competition with what God ultimately wants to do. In the world, it reminds me um, to kind of give us a clear visual for this of the show uh, Intervention. My wife and I used to watch the show. It, was a, it came on, I think, A and E, and um, and in the show, it would always center around a person who had some kind of addic addiction um, and was unable to like pull themselves out of it. And sometimes these people knew that they were addicts, and they knew that they needed help. Sometimes they didn't realize how bad the problem was. Actually, on almost every case, they didn't realize how bad the problem was. But in any case, they couldn't pull themselves out of their destructive habits. They couldn't pull themselves out of the system and the people that they were involved with that were contributing to their destructive habits. And it would be so heartbreaking because what would happen is there would be families who loved these people dearly who wanted to see these people rescued from their destructive ways and want to do everything they possibly could to see this person get clean, to, to see them not hurt themselves anymore, to see them not harming themselves, whether it was, a, was um, some kind of like destructive eating habits or whether it was uh, substance abuse or whatever it was, they, the families would so badly want to see the, these people rescued. 
And then normally what would happen is these people, the, uh, the person who was the addict would, would also be loved, so to speak, by, by people around them who were a part of their addiction and actually enabled or contributed in some way to their addiction. And, and actually they had an invested kind of interest in that person not changing. They might want that person to no longer be an addict, but it was too, it was too difficult. They were too close to it. And that is kind of the way that I, I see this idea of the world, that God looks down on the world like a father or a mother looks down on a son or a daughter and says, I love that so much. I love this person so much. I want them rescued from these things that are destroying them. But the person in and of itself has no ability to rescue themselves. And actually everything in their world is actually contributing to their destruction. It doesn't change God's love for it. Actually, he loves them even more, but out of his compassion and his love and his desire, he says, I've got to redeem them from this situation. So what would happen in intervention is they would stage an intervention. They would get this group of people around the person who really love them and say, hey, we are going to go all after you getting healthy and getting you out of this situation. And ultimately, that's what God is trying to do for our world. He's trying to rescue and redeem us. But we're, we're like the addict, and the world is like the addict right now who's so caught in our own system of destruction that we, we actually can't even see which way is up. I know that that's a bleak picture of the world. And I know actually over the last couple of weeks, I've kind of painted that bleak picture, but can you not look at humanity over this last year and see how broken we are? How responses to injustice is more injustice. How responses to things that we think are wrong with the world, we've responded with with other ways of doing wrong in the world. I mean, if, if anything that 2020 and now into 2020 has revealed is that humanity is broken. The world is broken. And so God doesn't want us to love that brokenness. What he wants for us is to adopt his perspective on this. So here, I don't want us to think, necessarily think um, uh, about, about this as, as, as the world is as bad as it could be, because it's not. It's just not the way it should be. It's not what God's heart is. And John uses language here, of very, it's very black and white. Uh, it, you either love God or you love the world. And he's doing that intentionally so, to be kind of provocative. Now he knows John's not ignorant of the fact that most of us experience this as gray. We have love for God, and then we also have these temptations and these things that are associated with the world, that we actually have these competing things going on in us. So what he's not saying is, uh, right now, for most of us, it's an all-or-nothing kind of equation. I think what he's trying to do is highlight how, where they're incompatible with one another so that, and, and allow us to see where are we trending. Are we trending towards a love for God or are we trending towards a love for the world? And the way that we do that is we actually name some of the things that reveal this is what love for the world is like. And so he does, he names three things and they kind of identify this is what love for the world looks like. It's summed up in these three things. They're markers or identifiers of what love for the world is. Uh, it reminds me when our kids sometimes were out uh, walking in the forest preserve around our area. 
uh, we've just learned through the years, have taught them how to identify uh, different tracks from animals in the snow or in the mud, or how to identify trails. I've taught them to look, here's how you see where a deer has gone, or here's how you see if this is a raccoon or if this is a coyote. We've given them kind of ways to identify these things so that when they see them, they can recognize them. And that is what John is doing here. He's giving us these three things that are kind of um, representative of love for a world so that we can see, are we trending this way or are we trending that way? So the first one is this, lust of the flesh. There's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says, these things are from the world, not from God. So the lust of the flesh, every human being has a base level of desire, a base level of things that we just want and need. They aren't good or bad in and of themselves. They just are. So for example, our desire to eat for food, it's a neutral desire. It's not good or evil. We need food for our existence, right? So it's just a base level. Our desire for comfort, it's not necessarily bad or good. We, we every human being desires comfort at some level. A desire for companionship or desire for physical intimacy. Uh, a desire for a sense of purpose. We're all born different ways, expresses itself differently, but with these kind of base level desires. They're in each and every one of us. But because of the sinfulness that's within the system of the world and within us as human beings, all of these desires have the, um, have the possibility and in reality actually are distorted or disordered in some way. So all of these desires that we have can be dis distorted or disordered in some way. So for example, the, the, the desire for good food can turn into gluttony. The desire for, um, for to have a, a glass of wine can turn into drunkenness. Or, or they can actually amplify and go to eating disorders or to other kind of addictive substance abuse. The desire for comfort can lead to kind of a materialism. A desire for relationships can turn into a desire for codependency. So every desire that we have can be twisted and distorted into something, uh, into something that's not good for us. And that's just giving us the best case scenario. Every desire can be twisted. Actually, some desires can be straight up evil or perverted. They're where there's no question about them being value neutral. They're just evil. They're just absolute evil or they're absolutely bad. But those come from a base in us where we're wired to desire certain things. We've referred to these in the past as appetites. We have an appetite for something. And that appetite in us needs to be satisfied in a way. When the Bible talks about flesh, as it does lust of the flesh here, 99% of the time it's not talking about our physical body, as though our physical body is somehow bad. Um, usually when it's talking about flesh, it's talking about how in the same way the entire world is somehow corrupted and under rule of the evil, that each, and one, of, each one of us individually that we are somehow subject to these evil desires as well. That the unredeemed or unrestrained part of us, that's the fleshly part of us, the part of us that, that's twisted or distorted or perverted in some way. It has nothing to do with our physical condition and everything to do with our spiritual condition. It's that part of us that's unrestrained. 
And so when it talks about the lust of the flesh, it's talking about all our desires or our appetites ruling over us, whether we know it or not, knowingly or unknowingly. The lust of the flesh is when we give ourselves over to those desires, where they occupy a place in our life that they're not meant to occupy. When uh, satisfying those desires, whatever it might be, for food or companionship or intimacy, whatever it might be, those things that could be good or neutral, when those things actually become to this point where they become like an idol in our life, where we're pursuing them to this crazy degree, where our, depend, our happiness as a human being is dependent on us satisfying those cravings that we have. When that happens, those things begin to rule over us. Those desires that were in us are actually meant to serve us, but what happens is we can actually become servants of them. And this is where things get twisted. We're serving those desires rather than them serving us. Now, again, sometimes this is a conscious decision. Uh, sometimes we, we're, we knowingly pursue this, but most of the time it's subtle. No alcoholic decides, I'm going to become an alcoholic. No, actually, and I don't know any person that's addicted to anything that's set out to become addicted to something. It happens subtly over time where something meets a need, and the more that meets the need, the more they want the thing because it scratches this itch that they have. So for me, uh, towards the end of last year into the beginning of this year, I had this growing conviction um, that I was allowing media to somehow bring me comfort in a way it wasn't meant to bring me comfort. And by media, I mean social media, I mean TV, uh, I mean any form of entertainment. Now, entertainment in itself isn't bad. There's nothing wrong with watching a movie, nothing wrong with social media necessarily, although some of you might argue with me about that. It's kind of can be a value neutral kind of thing. But what I recognize is how often uh, I was uh, going to my phone and picking it up and just pressing the Facebook button just to see what was going on or filling up empty space in the car listening to talk radio and all these kinds of things. And what I realized is, man, there's a lot of times where I'm just looking for something to kind of like, kind of, uh, uh, so it's not so, so quiet in my mind or in my heart. I'm looking for something to fill me up. And so I decided, I felt like the Lord was asking me to do a media fast. And so I stayed away from social media for the month of January. Uh, I didn't watch any TV unless the family was together. I didn't listen to any talk radio in the car. I'm not saying this in any kind of boastful way. Actually, what it revealed is how dependent on those things I really was. I realized how many times I pick up my phone out of boredom just to tap the phone. How, how many times I'm, I'm watching TV and I really don't care about what I'm watching. It's just filling up empty space. And what I realized is how much that I had this desire to be comforted by these things. And any other time I've done any kind of fasting, it's usually revealed the same kind of thing, that I'm usually dependent on something to satisfy some desire in me. And, and I don't realize how dependent on I, I am on it until it's taken away. John's point here, writing to a group of Christians. This is Christian people. He's not writing, warning people who don't know Jesus. He's writing to Christians is that we should pay careful attention to this because there is a battle for our heart. Remember that desire and devotion is what love is all about. So we have to be aware of what it is that we desire and what we are devoted to. And most of us don't give any thoughts to that. 
We, we unconsciously desire things and therefore we unconsciously are devoted to certain things that are, things are getting our devotion. So we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware of what it is that we desire. We have to be aware of what it is that our flesh wants, this fallen side of us. We have to be aware of that. Now, God's heart, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this so loud and clear because some of you are carrying baggage from your past that's going to keep you from hearing. So in the name of Jesus, open ears right now to hear this. I pray in the name of Jesus, you would open ears to hear. Holy Spirit, do it right now. God's heart is not simply to stop your behavior. His heart is not to simply stop your behavior. He's not interested in you just stopping the habit that's destructive. Although he does want you to do that, that's not his heart. His heart for you is that you would desire him more than the other things. His heart for you is that he doesn't want you to be slave to your desires. He, doesn't, he gave you these things so that they would be a servant to you, not the other way around. What he doesn't want for you is to give yourself over to every inclination of everything that makes you feel good because what he knows is that's actually destructive to you and it is out of love and care and concern that your heavenly father says, son, daughter, I don't want you to do that. I know when we hear this, this phrase, the lust of the flesh, it immediately triggers some things for some people. And I'm telling you, it's keeping you from walking in freedom because what God's heart is for you is that you would lay aside the associations you have with behavior modification and understand that this is a competition for your heart. And God wants you to love him and give these desires over to him. And so what love for God looks like here is when it is expressed in trust that he will satisfy what we need. And so we can give our desire and our devotion over to him. So that's lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes. I'm going to go through the other two really quickly. Lust of the eyes. This one is pretty straightforward. Uh, the, the idea of lust of the eyes uh, is, a, is a picture of someone who sees something. And when they see something, they find it desirable. And all of a sudden they feel like they can't be satisfied unless they have it. So they see it. They want it and they have to have it. So Eve, for example, the mother of humanity, so to speak, sees that the fruit is good and pleasing to her, her eye and desirable. And so she takes it for herself and leads us all into sin. David, King David of the Old Testament, sees Bathsheba, this woman who is the wife of, of one of his, one of his uh, people in his army. And he sees that she's beautiful. He desires her. And then he decides to take her for himself and actually ends up killing her husband, Uriah. This is usually something what we see something out there outside of us and we desire it. And it's usually tied to some sense of jealousy or envy or coveting or comparison. So uh, what, a lot of times what happens, that person has something that I want. And so we end up doing this comparison thing. I am less than until I have what they have. I'm jealous of what they have. I'm envious of what they have. I covet what they have. I see something that I want and it produces a dissatisfaction within me until I have it. This is not just a, just a inborn desire like that fleshly desire. It actually is something that's produced where we see something and we feel like I'm deficient until, until I have that. I'm dissatisfied with my life until I have that thing. 
And I would say actually that this most often comes up in, in comparison. We compare this person's life to our life, this person's status in life to our life, what this person has in their marriage to what I have in my marriage, what this person has with their family compared to what I have. And usually this produces all kinds of just yucky stuff within us. I actually think that comparison is one of the biggest unrecognized killers because it causes us to see ourselves in a light that God doesn't mean for us to see it. We see ourselves as deficient rather than beautiful and glorious the way that God created us to be. This happened recently for me. I went on a retreat back in November. It was 20 pastors from around the country. Uh, the person who was leading the retreat is a person I really look up to as a pastor, a uh, really influential person, and I was so honored to be there. Really, from, from day one, I was like, why am I in this room with this group of people? I felt so honored to be there. And it was incredible. They had gifts for us that they gave. They just really tried to bless us pastors. Uh, they knew that last year has been very difficult. So they bless us with good food and different gifts. They had all different kinds of great teaching for us and great experiences. We even, the trip culminated with us going to the house where Johnny Cash wrote and recorded some of his most famous songs. We got to sing worship with a famous worship leader in this room. It was just incredible. But the whole entire time I was there, I found myself comparing myself to other pastors. And I know better. I know I'm not supposed to do this, but here I am. I'm sitting at a table and there's a pastor of a 4,000 person church and a person of pastor of a 3,000 person church and a pastor of a thousand person church. And here I am. I love you all, but we're small. And I was feeling that smallness there sitting around the table. And I started comparing what they have and what they've accomplished with what I have and what I've accomplished. And I started feeling really small. And you know what it did? It actually stole so much of the joy and the, and, and the gift that I felt like God brought me to this place to give me here. I was so caught up in comparing myself that I was missing these incredible gifts that were right in front of me that God was like blessing me with. See, when we live in this desire that we have to have what someone else has, that there's always more. It, what it does is it produces that sense of dissatisfaction in us. And usually this is a subtle thing. It doesn't start. It's usually something that's, that happens over time. And, but unchecked, it leads to all kinds of disordered desire and devotion. We end up chasing what other people have. I have to have what they have. And what John is saying is, look, this is an identifying marker of what the world is all about. <laughs> The world wants to kind of get ahead, to push other people down, to get what you want in life, to find your satisfaction. And he says, that is not the love of God. That is love from the world. That's not what God wants for us. What God wants for us, his heart for us, is to live in the reality of his abundance and provision. He wants us to walk in every moment saying, look at what God has done. Look at how he's taking care of me. Yeah, I know that person has a bigger house or bigger money. I know that person has a, has a marriage that I think that I would like to have, but, but oh my gosh, look at what God has done. And when we compare, when we give ourselves over to that system of the world, it actually begins to have, cause us to have a divided heart. We can't see and appreciate and love God for who he really is as long as we're comparing ourselves to another person and having that lust of the eyes. So love for God instead of that is expressed in gratitude. God, thank you. I, I, I thank you for what you've given me. And in generosity saying, I, I don't need what they have. As a matter of fact, I want to give away what I have because God has given me so much. 
And the last one is the pride of life. The pride of life. This is like a funky phrase in the original language. In, in Greek, it puts two words together, pride and the word bio or bios, which is where we get the word biography, a story about a life. And biographies in the ancient world weren't just stories that told a history about someone who, uh, some, someone famous. They were actually meant to recount their great deeds and accomplishments to convince you that they were a person who was a worthy person to aspire to, to be looked up to. And so people would write accounts and they would, uh, they would take accounts of their wealth or their accomplishments in life. And those things would be passed around and everybody would approve of that person. And so what John seems to be saying here is he's putting the idea of pride and the idea of writing an account of someone's life to win people's approval together. And when you put these things together, you get a picture of someone who is boasting, someone who is trying to make themselves look good in the eyes of other people to win their approval. So the pride of life is all about trying to make myself look good to win the approval of other people trying to be someone, whether it's who I really am or whether someone I aspire to be, who other people really love and adore. Now, there is a, um, a healthy sense of pride in who we are and what we've accomplished. A sense of, man, I've worked really hard for something and I, I can't believe I did that. I'm really, I'm really proud of that. That's, that's fine. That's an unhealthy sense of pride. But it's another thing to boast about our accomplishments and make sure that everybody sees this great thing that we've done so that other people will think more highly of us. Building up an image of ourselves so that our worth and our value is bound up in what other people think. And when that happens, it's destructive to us. He says that is participating, that's love for the world. When we try to win people's approval, when our worth and our value is caught up in what other people think about us, that's the way the world works. And that's, that's antithetical to the love for God. Because usually what happens is when we to lift ourselves up and make ourselves look good, oftentimes what happens is we have to make our, other people look bad doesn't happen all the time, but oftentimes that's the way. We have to put, put out, point out how other people are not as good as us in order to, for ourselves to feel better or to look better. And, and that's obviously wrong in and of itself. More often than not, that's not necessarily what we do. But typically what happens is we're constantly on the lookout for the approval of other people and their opinions of us. I know people who think that they don't care about what other people think about it, but what they really want is to be the kind of person that other people perceive as, I don't really care what anybody thinks about me. Do you see this kind of circular kind of logic where I want to prove that I don't care what people think about me? Well, guess what? If that's what you're doing, you care what people think about you and you are looking to win their approval. This is why teenage rebellion, I'm going to dress different. I'm going to do different stuff. And I'm going to, you know, do all these different kinds of things. Feel, I don't care what anybody thinks. It's 100% I care what people think about me, <laughs> right? And this, not everybody struggles with this at the same level, but all of us in some way want to be approved uh, by the people around us. The problem is we can never win at this game completely if our value and our worth is tied up in other people's approval. We'll never be good enough to be the, be the best. We'll never be smart enough to be the smartest. Like there'll always be people who are better than us. 
And if, if our opinion is wrapped up in what other, or our value and our worth is wrapped up in what other people think about us, then we're only as valuable and worthy as the last great accomplishment we have or how many people know about it. But the truth is it only matters what God thinks about us. His approval is the only thing that matters. And what John is saying is here, when you chase that, then all of a sudden what God thinks about you begins to fade into the background and what other people think about you have become more important. I want to be careful here. I think this is one of the major problems we have right now uh, within Christianity as well as the world. So we want to have platforms where people follow us and know us and whatever they, whatever they want. But what really matters is whether or not you're known in the secret place. That God would know who I am and that I would know he, who he is is more important than how many followers I have on Instagram or how many people think I'm great or not great. It doesn't really matter. What we want to do is be famous in the courts of heaven, not famous in any other way because that is so fleeting. But what we have with God is eternal. Again, this can take over our lives. <laughs> This can become all-encompassing for us, pursuing the next level of approval, uh, uh, pursuing the next person who thinks well of us. And again, God doesn't want this for you. He doesn't want you living on the opinions of other people. Not because he, doesn't, he wants you people to hate you. That's not the point at all. But he doesn't want you to live in despair when you're disappointed when people don't love you. He doesn't want you to be tied to other people's opinions of you. He wants his opinion and his approval to be your only aim in life. And if you really knew what God thought about you, it would change everything. You know, every person that has accomplished anything of real spiritual value, any eternal spiritual value, anyone who's led any spiritual movement, they've almost all had some encounter with God where they realized their identity in Christ. They realized their inheritance and said, what have I been doing with my whole life? I now get to lay my life down and I get to serve because I'm no longer trying to find my value and my worth in serving other people. My value and my worth is, is, is only caught up in serving God Almighty. And because the issue of who they are is settled. So God doesn't want the issue of who you are and your approval to be unsettled in your life. Because if you do, you'll chase the systems of the world instead of chasing love for him. Love for God is revealed in finding and seeking his approval. And let me just say as an aside, this is not about winning your salvation through your works. This is not about that. God's approval of you was revealed on the cross. I love you. I forgive you. You are my sons and daughters. If you will take on the forgiveness that I'm offering to you right now, you are loved infinitely and forever, and the issue is settled. So it's not so much trying to win God's approval. It's about aligning our minds with what God already says is true about us and aligning our behavior with who we are. This is what it says over and over again in the New Testament. Live up to what you've already attained. Step into who you are. So John says, look, these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of the life, these things will fade away. But those who do the will of God, those who pursue loving God, They'll live forever. They'll live forever. So as I'm bringing it to a close, here's what I want us to, to do. 
I think what God is inviting us into is a time for us to examine our hearts and see, is there love for the world or love for God? And my guess is what we'll find if we'll expose ourselves to this, if we'll allow God to examine our hearts, that we'll see is that there is both love for God and love for the world. But I think what God wants to do is highlight these areas where maybe our heart has been given over to loving the world in one of these ways where our heart has kind of drifted away from loving him and towards loving other things. So I think maybe what God wants to do is invite us into a space where we allow our hearts to be examined and see what is going on in there. In what ways am I loving the world or not loving the world? In what ways am I experiencing competition or tension in my heart? I want to, I want to love God, but I also want these things. And so what we're going to do over the, uh, is give you a couple specific practices or disciplines, ways that you can actually work on some of these things where you can intentionally enter a process and enter a process where the Holy Spirit can reveal these areas of your life where maybe there's a love for the world versus a love for God and there's a competition there and how you can begin to yield yourself more over to the Holy Spirit. So those will be posted online this week. In addition, on Wednesday, for Ash Wednesday, our office is going to be open if you want to come and pray. We'll have some places around the office dedicated for you to come and have a private place to pray and seek God's heart. So I want to encourage you, don't enter into this lightly. Don't just take this for granted. Actually, let this be a season where the Holy Spirit examines your heart and, and reveals these areas where maybe there's disordered love or desire in one of these things, where you're pursuing people's approval, maybe where you're trying to do competition uh, with, with, to, to, to kind of get a certain thing in life, or maybe where you're allowing certain desires that you have to order and run your life. God wants to free you of that stuff because he loves you so much and he wants to put his love in your heart. And he wants you to love him back because he knows it's what's good for you. So watch this week, we'll be putting out those practices that you can try. You can identify which one of these areas do you feel like you need to highlight and what's the practice or the discipline, the spiritual discipline that you can adopt during this Lenten season in order to allow yourself to step more into freedom. Let me pray for you for that right now. So in Jesus' name. I pray for my friends who are listening. I pray, God, if there's been anything that's been highlighted to, to someone right now, God, it would just become clear into focus. It would just be as though you're zooming in on this one particular area, God, where you're putting your finger directly on something that's bringing ruin and destruction and pain into people's heart. Because, Lord, your desire, I declare it in the name of the Lord, that your desire is to bring freedom and joy and peace and righteousness to every person. It's your heart, Lord. That's what you want, God. So I know that you are relentlessly pursuing us, Lord, because you want us to step into the freedom that is ours in Christ. So I pray, Lord, by your spirit, that you, God, would open up hearts and minds right now to receive what you have. I pray, Lord, by your spirit, God, that you would begin to help people to identify so clearly what those areas are that they need to give over unto you. I pray for freedom in this Lent season, in Jesus' name.